Well, welcome. Uh, this evening we're going to continue on with our overview of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And a few weeks ago we went over chapter one of the Holy Scriptures. And prior to starting that, I did mention that when we're going to go through the uh, each chapter, we're going to reference the chapter with which paragraph that we're in. So for example, for example, there are three paragraphs in chapter two. And so I may say chapter two, paragraph one, or chapter two, paragraph two. And then with today's uh, lesson, I, we're, we're going to go through each paragraph slowly. I'm going to read the whole paragraph. And then we'll just go through phrases and words and define and add clarity to some of the words and phrases. And just so that we can have a good foundation of what each paragraph is trying to communicate to the readers. So this isn't an all-inclusive lesson. We intend on doing that once we constitute. We want to slowly go through the confession that we're going to use as a church. We're going to go through each chapter, paragraph by paragraph. We're also going to slowly go through the verses that are associated with um, each paragraph because it's important to know that these words are simply words that are communicating ideas that are rooted in scripture. And so for the sake of today, we're not going to dive at all deep into any of the verses. This is again, just an overview for us to understand. Uh, now removed some 300 years from the time that this confession was written for us to understand what the words and what some of the phrases are trying to communicate to the reader. And so chapter two of this confession is titled of God and the Holy Trinity. And as I said, there are three paragraphs. And really this is chapter two is moving from chapter one, where chapter one focused on the Holy Scriptures, which really is our basis of knowing. Um, so when we talk about, you know, um, what is it that we want to learn of God, really we can point to chapter one, which talked about how foundational and how important it is um, to use the Holy Scriptures. And and so from that foundation, we move to chapter two, which really focuses on the principle of being. And in this case, it's going to focus on the first being, which is God. And so I have two quotes here. Um, a lot of the quotes that I'm going to be uh, mentioning here again come from this book, which is a phenomenal commentary on the 1689 by James Renahan. It's called To the Judicious and Impartial Reader. And so one quote I want to read is reads as this, the contents of the chapter broadly follow the accepted method common to Protestant scholastic theology. And then he quotes here Andreas Beck, where Andreas Beck says, typically uh, theologians discussed first the existence of God, moving second to his names, his essence and attributes, and then third to the Trinitarian persons. And then the last quote I'll read here as an introduction, uh, James writes, The confessional doctrine of God found in the Second London Confession, chapter 2, presents and defines classical Christian theism in its finest post-Reformation form. And so let us look now at chapter 2, paragraph 1. And if we wanted to give a title to this paragraph, we could give it the title, The One True God. And really what this is focused on is the being of God. And so let's read this uh, chapter, chapter 2, paragraph 1. 
The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortal immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So if you want to follow along with your finger, I'm going to be reading through paragraph one again of chapter two. I'll be reading every word and every phrase, but I'll be pausing and just giving some definition, some insight on what it's trying to say. Again, this is an overview, and we are, uh, and so it'll it'll be as such. Um, so, looking at chapter two of paragraph one, the Lord our God is but one being only, and really, I want us to look at that word, the Lord our God. This is our confession of faith, and this is really the beginning of worship. We'll begin to recognize who God is um, as he has revealed himself to, cre to creation. And so the Lord our God is but one being only. This word only is exclusive, meaning that it is only God who is going to be of the being in, in which it begins to describe itself. And there is only one God, there is no other. And so this word one, we can begin to look at that word one as himself, or we can say self. And so it says, the Lord our God is but one being only, living and only true God. And so with the word living, if we take the word one and only prior to that, we could say that living speaks of his self-existence. And the phrase and only, and I'm, put, I'm adding that word only, because it continues to define uh, the, the phrase true God, and only true God. And this is a reflection of his self-knowledge. It goes on to say, whose subsistence is in and of himself. This word subsistence in chapter 2 is used two times. And in both cases, it carries a different sense. This first occasion really refers to the self-existent life of God. And so we could define subsistence like this. Subsistence is the property by which an entity is capable of existing in and of himself or in his, in his or its own right. It focuses on the aspect of the independence of the existence of what there is. And so it says there, whose subsistence is in and of himself. It goes on to say, infinite in being. This uh, chapter 2, verse uh, paragraph 1 is really focused on the being of God. And so when we think of the being of God, we must think in light of the scriptures, 
that he is infinite in this being. The word infinite means limitless or endless in space, extent, or size. Impossible to measure or calculate. So this God is infinite in being. And that word infinite also defines the next word. He is infinite in perfection. Whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. That word essence is really the being of God, the essence of who God is. And so when we're comprehending who God is, it's important to understand that only God can comprehend himself completely. And so by essence, essence really is the intrinsic nature or the indispensable quality of something, especially something that is abstract, that determines its character. I have a quote here from the book again that says, in many ways what follows here after all of that in paragraph one is simply a delineation or perhaps even a summary of the divine perfections expressed in human natures. And so the confession continues to go on saying that this God is a more pure spirit, invisible. A spirit is invisible. God cannot be seen. It goes on to say without body, and I'll just add, without parts or without passions. Without body is just, again, if we, if we look at this phrase, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Without body, God is a spirit, and he does not have a body like a man. This phrase, without parts, really means that God is simple. God is not a composite being or like the sum total of his divine attributes. He is without parts. He is also without passions. This encapsulates, encapsulates the classical doctrine of divine impassibility. And again, there's a lot here in these words that we're definitely going to dive deep into. But for the sake of a definition, divine impassibility really means that when scriptures ascribe emotional changes in God, these texts must be understood as anthropopathisms. That means human idioms describing eternal and unchanging virtues in God. God communicates with man in a way that man can comprehend him. Remember earlier it says that his essence, that is his being, cannot be comprehended outside of himself. And yet God uses languages of change to communicate ideas to us about who God is. And yet it does not change the fact that God is without body, without parts, and without passions. It goes on to say, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. I have a, a, um, a quote here from John Owen of the, out of the book that he wrote of the mortification of sin. Owen here says, which is uh, a good, uh, just a good commentary on this idea of um, God dwelling in light, which no man can approach unto. Owen says, he is not seen, not because he cannot be seen, but because we cannot bear the sight of him. The light of God in whom is no darkness forbids all access to him by any creature, whatever. We who cannot behold the sun in its glory are too weak to bear the beams of infinite brightness. The um, confession goes on to say, uh, I'm speaking of who God is, who is immutable. Immutable means God, God does not change. And I'll just, I'm going to add some words in here to, to help us follow along. 
who is immutable, who is immense. That is, God fills every place. God cannot be contained. Who is eternal? That means he has no beginning and he has no end. Who is incomprehensible? That is, that he is not able to be understood completely. Whose essence, remember earlier it said, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. It goes on to say, who is almighty? Who is in every way infinite? This word infinite again means limitless or endless in space, extent, or size. Impossible to measure or calculate. And then it goes on to say, and I'm going to read these words here. Um, who is most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. The word most is really um, just stating or defining God as being absolute or utterly. Most is with regards to himself and in contrast with other beings. So when we speak of things that are beings that are holy, we can think as God as being most holy. When we think of things or beings that are wise, we can think as God most wise. We can think of God as most free. We can think of God as most absolute. This is God. This is God who, this is a God who acts or works in time and space. He is active, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. For his own glory. If you are in, uh, if you have been learning catechism or teaching your kids catechisms, there are questions here that help us to understand this idea of God working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable, remember, unchanging and most righteous will for his own glory. So a question could be asked, what is the chief end of, uh, end of man? Well, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or we could ask, why did God make you in all things? And you could answer, God made you in all things for his own glory. God's actions are actions that stem out of the fact that he is a loving God, that he is a gracious God, and he is a God of mercy. And so the confession continues to say that this God is most loving, most gracious, and most merciful. That he is long-suffering, abundant in goodness, and abundant in truth. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so we see that God's actions are also actions of justice, for he is most holy. Because it goes on to say that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And withal, most just and most terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. And so we move on to chapter 2, paragraph 2. In chapter 2, paragraph 2, we begin to see more actions of God in relation to things outside of him. We could say that chapter 2, paragraph 2, is going to be on how God relates in comparison or in contrast with his creation. We can also say that chapter 2, paragraph 2, is on how God relates in time and space with his creation. And so chapter 2, paragraph 2, reads as follows. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone and unto himself, all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in 
by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone found fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience. As creatures, they owe unto the Creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. And so we see the paragraph 2 opens with the lines, God having all life, and we could say having all glory, and we could say having all goodness, and having all blessedness in and of himself. These words are familiar to us. Is alone in and unto himself. In many ways, based on his possession of the fact that he is having all life, that he is having all glory, having all goodness, and having all blessedness, him alone and unto himself, and is therefore, because of those things, he is therefore all sufficient. This is the idea that God is self-sufficient, that God's self-sufficiency or independence, uh, that God is self-sufficient and independent, and that this is um, in contrast to or over against uh, him, the idea that he is dependent upon his creatures for anything. His self-existence takes nothing from his creatures and has no necessity from them. Rather, it give, he gives to them glory. And they reflect what is already essentially God's. He is the source of their existence and ensures its continuing reality. And so when we say, why did God make you in all things? He made, uh, he, he made all things for his glory. It's really all that we're saying here, we're talking about the self-sufficiency of God, is that God didn't need to be glorified. He created us to behold his glory and reflect back what is already his, his glory. And so he is all sufficient. The confession goes on to say, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made. That is, that God doesn't need anything from his creation. God has made creation for a purpose, not out of necessity, but out of his own out of the free will and counsel, or, or out of the free counsel of his own divine will nor deriving any glory from them. Again, this is no new glory given to God from us. We are merely reflecting back what he is already, uh, we could say, uh, shining into his creation. All glory originates in God and is reflected back to him by his creation. It goes on to say, but only manifesting his own glory in and by and unto and upon them, that is his creation. And so that whole first sentence is largely a summary of the preceding material that we saw in paragraph one. And so it goes on to say, He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. This is a proper understanding of, of the idea of beings. 
a proper understanding of a being. So if we think of what does it mean to be man, first we must consider who the being of God is. Since God alone is the fountain of all being, in that he created all things, it says there, he is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. It is God alone who has created um, all things. And so when we consider what it means to be a being, we must consider who God is first. It goes on to say, and he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures. Let's, it elaborates, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. That phrase there is a good little summary of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I'll read that again. He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, that is, over all his creation, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. Remember, this is the God who has all life, all glory, all goodness, and all blessedness in and of himself. It goes on to say, in his sight, all things are open and manifest. This is the doctrine of the omniscience of God, that is, that God knows all things. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, meaning, again, it does not change, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, God's knowledge and, the, and God's sovereignty aren't contingent on anything that he sees in the future or anything that he knows is going to happen. Everything is done according to the counsel of his own unchanging will. He goes on to say he is most holy in all his counsels, most holy in all his works, and most holy in all his commands. And because God is, therefore all other beings must. If God is all these things, Therefore, all other beings must be or must do what? It says, to him, it says there next, To him is due from angels and men whatsoever, and it names here three things, whatsoever worship, whatsoever service, or obe whatsoever obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator. This is a good distinction here where it begins to distinct, uh, distinguish between the obligation of the creature to the Creator. If God is, if the things concerning God that we have stated here are true, and that God created everything for His own glory, then there must be an obligation for the creature to behold, to obey, to serve, to worship the Creator who has created Him. And here in this confession, it affirms that the natural obligation of all created beings unto their Creator. But then it adds this uh, last clause here at the end of paragraph two. It says, and whatever God, whatever he is further pleased to require of them. And as we go through the confession, what we're going to see is the addition of what we call positive law. This is law added or law that is in, in addition to this natural obligation of all creation to the creator the natural obligation to worship, to serve, and to obey God as creator. Think of the idea of God creating Adam with this obligation to worship, to serve, and to obey. And then he puts them, He puts Adam in a garden and gives him extra law by saying, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that that is just an idea. You can think of, you know, the ceremonial laws of, you know, 
the sacrifices and what to wear when they do the sacrifices and how to build the tabernacle or the feasts or, or all the thing, all the extra law that is not necess- that, that is not at all rooted in creation. This is what it means by and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. Moving along to chapter 2, paragraph 3. Uh, we could title um, this, or we could look at this as being God's internal relation. So this is the essence of the being of God, which cannot be comprehended by any by him, but himself. Um, so this is going to begin to show us God's internal relationships. Remember, we've affirmed that God is only one being. And here in paragraph 3, begins to add more light, more revelation to who God is. And so it reads as thus, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. And so we can look at uh, this first uh, phrase in paragraph 3 where it says, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. And so here is the second use of the word subsistence. And as uh, just uh, for commentary's sake, as we noted above, Subsistences is used with two different senses in this chapter. So in the first sense, it really talks about the divine existence of God. But here it's going to start referring to the persons who together exist as Trinity. So for simplicity, when you hear the word subsistence here in chapter 3, it just means person. And so it says, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences or three persons. And so it names who these three persons are. And really what I want you to take away is that you would not know that there are three persons in the Godhead apart from divine revelation, apart from special revelation. It's scripture that tells us who these three persons are and who the, and what are their names that are given to them. And so the names are the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so remember, we're talking about one God and now three persons in that one Godhead. So it affirms that one, the, 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 the oneness and yet the fact that there are three, person, three persons. It wants to maintain that oneness. So it says, of one substance, of, and I'll say of one power, and I'll say, and of one eternity. If you look further down in this uh, chapter, it's... It affirms it again later on. It says, all infinite, all without beginning, therefore all but one God. This God who is not to be divided in nature and being. And so when 
God reveals to us that he is one in three, we're not, we're not affirming that there are three different Godheads making up this one God. No, there are three subsistences or three persons in this one Godhead who are of one substance, of one power, and of one eternity. It goes on to say, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Again, see below. Um, I have a quote here where Renahan writes, it seems that the Baptists wanted to provide some protection from the ontological equality of each person of the Trinity. Notice that they, are, that they argue that there is no division in God's nature and being, but rather distinction in terms of several peculiar, this is words that we'll see in this uh, paragraph, that, that the only distinction really is in several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. And this language is very significant for it guards in, in basically in history, it guards against any heresy, heresies like modalism or any heresies concerning the person of, of Jesus Christ, the God man. And so the next few phrases are going to artic articulate what these peculiar relative properties and personal relations of each of the persons or subsistences within the Trinity are. And so we'll read this phrase here. Um, I'm not going to dive too uh, deep into them at all um, because we're going to close with reading from the Nicene Creed. It's a helpful um, light um, to what these words mean. And again, we'll un unpack this later on when we constitute as a church. But regarding these peculiar relative properties and personal relations, um, the the... Confession goes on to say that the Father is of none. And it's going to say neither begotten nor preceding. This is to distinguish the Father from the Son with the phrase neither begotten and to distinguish the Father from the Holy Spirit when it says nor preceding. It goes on to say the Son is eternally begotten. It is the Son who is eternally begotten of the Father. And then of the third person it says the Holy Spirit proceeding. And I'll say not begotten because it is the Son who is begotten. It is the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Again, affirming the unity in nature and being. For it says that they are all infinite. And I'll add all without beginning. Therefore, all but one God. Got this God who is not to be divided in nature and being but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which we just read what those are, well, in a very broad sense. And it goes on to end here, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him? And so I will add, a proper understanding of the being of God results in a proper understanding of the being of created beings both of angels and of men. And I could also say a proper understanding of the relationship of the being of God with the beings of, that he has created, and this would be of angels and of men. And so all we're saying here with that last phrase is that the doctrine of who God is is the foundation of a proper relationship or communion with God and a comfortable dependence on him. So when we say we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or who is the second person of the Godhead, or we say, 
I have a relationship with God, that God loves me. And, you know, we could ask, well, what God are you talking about? It's important and it's foundational to know who God is, to have a proper understanding of who man is. And so let, I wanted to read from the Nicene Creed as a helpful, just um, just a, it's a, just another creed that we read. We read that here in at Shepherd sometimes when during our liturgy, and historically this has been used by Christians all over the world to confess who God is, and then there's a small little addition of the church concerning the church, and so the Nicene Creeds reads this way: We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us, men, and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And there you see this confession of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this creed finishes with the church. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Does anybody have any questions? I know it's a small group. If not, I'll close this out in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time of doing a just a broad overview of a confession that we believe um, confesses what the Scriptures proclaim and what the Scriptures teach. And so, although we utilize a confession, Lord, it is your Scriptures that we run to for knowing who you are, and who we are in light of sin, and in light of salvation, and in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ, in light of redemptive history from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought us into union with you through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the union of the saints here gathered tonight. Father, we pray for those that are not able to make it here tonight. We pray that you be with them and that you keep them in Christ. And we look forward to coming together again on the Lord's Day to worship you, to behold you, to reflect back your glory, to be renewed again by your, your um, means of, of grace that sanctify us and press us on towards holiness and righteousness, that renew us to begin a, good, a new week again, living in this world but not being a part of it, Father. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for revealing to mankind who you are. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.